Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Uh, today is Friday, August 25th, 2017. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Tiffany, Doug, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. So we're missing Gabby today. We wish her well. Uh, hopefully she can join us next week. Um, She's out hunting for mushrooms, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so today's topic is fungus among us. Uh, <laughs> we are going to talk about all different types of fungi. Uh, fungi are the, one of the key elements of life on Earth, um, it, it, while simultaneously being one of the least understood forms of life on Earth. Um, it, it's just the sheer volume of how many different types of fungi there are and the range of things that they do uh, is staggering, you know, all the way from curing cancer to uh, can kill you within a few seconds. So uh, we're just going to kind of run through that and talk about all different types of fungi. Um, but I guess, do you guys want to start start with the good stuff? We'll end on a yeah. downer for everybody because we, we know our listeners like that. Yeah, we don't want to change our pattern. We'll start <laughs> with the fun guys and then end with the not-so-fun guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the, the medicinal mushrooms thing, I think, is kind of interesting. Um, we have, you know, things like lion's mane, cordyceps. Uh, cordyceps is a big one for cancer, um, if I'm saying that right, cord- cordyceps. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm curious. What, do you, I don't have any personal experience with, like, healing mushrooms per se. I mean, I, you know, I guess, like, we were talking before the show about chaga, and I've, I've tried chaga in, like, a tea. Um, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Do you guys have any experience in that area? My experience I've... is just like white mushrooms, portobello mushrooms <laughs> that I put in food. I'm afraid I... to go out into the forest and get mushrooms because I'm scared I might accidentally poison myself, which yeah. is a really sad way to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm out there looking for health and I end up killing my liver. But um, yeah. you know, I don't have any real experience with mushrooms, I, but it sounds fascinating. I've tried quite a few just in like supplement form. Um, yeah. You know, just, uh, you know, I, I've, I haven't really done any kind of like extensive therapies with them or anything to try and like, you know, heal a particular ailment, but I've certainly tried quite a few. I've done chaga tea, like you said, Jonathan, and um, I actually tried that as a coffee replacement at one point. Um, uh-huh. I, I thought it fell pretty short. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yep. some people seem to like it a lot. Um, I used to make a tea with uh, reishi mushroom too. I had a friend who actually gave me a, a big, huge chunk of reishi, um, and reishi mushroom is quite great. So I, I was kind of um, made kind of a liver tonic tea with that um, that included cool. like nettle and a few other things as well. And I've done lion's mane and a bunch of other stuff. It's it's hard to say when you just kind of like take capsules for like a month and and you know, try to see if anything happens. It's always a bit, uh, you know, difficult to kind of pin anything down. The Chinese use it a lot in their remedies, in their traditional medicine, and they use it for all kinds of stuff like night sweats, sexual dysfunction, high blood sugar, respiratory disease, kidney function, irregular heartbeat, and they are definitely not tasty. Mm. It's more of that bitter kind of bitterness. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's what I thought about chaga too. For for listeners who might not know, chaga is a a, a mushroom of sorts that it looks like a big chunk of uh, brown bark, almost mm. like mm-hmm. like a dark piece of thick 
bark off of a tree, but it grows on birch trees, but it doesn't look like birch bark at all. It's like dark and brown and kind of golden in some places. But I, I think the reason they try the coffee substitute thing is just because it, it makes a, a brown liquid, essentially. Yeah, bitter too. yeah. It, it, I mean, it's kind it of reminiscent good. of coffee, but not, not particularly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I've never personally had any kind of drastic experiences, but I think more along the lines, Doug, of what you said, you know, it takes supplements occasionally, and I don't really notice anything. It's kind of like with there are certain herbs that are like that for me, too, like cat's claw. I'll take once in a while, but I couldn't exactly tell you why, you know, mm-hmm. run through a bottle of it. Like, I, I guess that was good for me. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be interested I think, in um, some already if... pre-prepared mushroom so, extracts. I mm-hmm. just don't trust my yeah. out and pick any. <laughs> I think that's why. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't it shouldn't be advisable to just go out and start picking mushrooms. I think you really need to be in the company of someone who knows what they're doing because it it can be kind of dangerous um if you have no idea. <laughs> Elliot? Right. Uh yeah, sorry, there's a little bit of a lag. Um but yeah, I, I, on what you were saying, Jonathan, about sort of taking the odd m- mushroom here and there, um, without any sort of specific reason, then it, it may be difficult to see if it's having any effect. But if you've got something like terminal uh, kidney cancer or something, um, then, then it, it's a lot easier for you to be able to see whether it works or not. And I, um, I actually have... Um, I have a, well, I say he's a friend, he's someone that I know, uh, he's someone that I trained with last year, and um, and he was diagnosed with, I think it was stage 3 kidney cancer, um, mm. he went for chemotherapy, but he was told that he only had a couple of months to live, um, and so he basically had a complete shift around in his life, and um, decided that he wanted to learn about nutrition, and funnily enough, I mean, he went vegan and he started doing all the juices and everything like that. But um, but the main thing that he actually used was something called BioBran. So this is uh, it's a type of fungus that's grown on. They grow it on rice bran. So they mm. mix a type of fungus with the rice bran, and then it produces a metabolite. And then they use this metabolite. Um, they sort of isolate it, and then you you use it as a treatment. And um, so he used this, um, I don't know how long for, I think he used it for a couple of months, and then he went back to his doctor, and um, and it turns out that he'd actually completely cured himself of cancer, and he's now on his way to being in, in remission. Um, wow. And so he was pretty flabbergasted by this, and that's why he actually yeah. chose to, to go and, and study nutrition. Um, but I thought it was amazing. So this, this biobrand compound, I started looking a lot more into it because one of my lecturers actually uses it. She's a specialist in integrative cancer therapy, and she, um, she uses it with every single cancer case, and she's apparently had really good results with it. Um, wow. And so basically, for anyone who's interested, it's called Biobran MGN-3. Okay, oh, so I'll put that. it up in the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think some of the articles we spoke about it, um, uh, some of the articles that we read spoke about this particular thing. But, I mean, there's there's a couple of doctors who are, who are out there basically saying that this is like the most potent anti-cancer thing that they've ever, ever come across um, and and these guys have been studying cancer for a very long time and so it's, mm. it's people are up in the rage about it because it's apparently wonder, amazing stuff 
But um, I wonder if um, I'm I'll, sorry, Elliot. I know I'll, we have a lag. I, I, I wonder if Doctor Circus has this on his radar. Are you aware of that at all? Yeah, hmm. I think he did mention it in one of the articles. Hmm. Sorry, please go it's, on. It's I didn't expensive mean to cut stuff, you off. by the way. Yeah, it is. No, it's okay. It's it. It's really expensive. I mean, I think for a month's supply, it's about three hundred pounds. So that's maybe five hundred dollars or something. Um, but if it's going to save your life, then I mean, go ahead and do it. <laughs> I, I yeah. personally it's would. It's anyway. cheaper than chemotherapy. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, and it actually works. <laughs> At least for this guy. Well, a lot of the the research out there on medicinal mushrooms is really very impressive. Like just one example is uh, that lion's mane mushroom, mm-hmm. and they've actually found in studies that it will actually regenerate um, nerve tissue. Like mm-hmm. you know, actually um, regenerate the it'll remyelinate the nerves, um, and they found that it improves cognition and uh, improves digestive function as well, um, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. All kinds of like amazing things improves the lipid profile. So I mean, like these medicinal mushrooms are actually quite amazing when you um, look at them and how they're being used, kind of in particular kind of settings for you know particular ailments and stuff. It's 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 actually really impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've used that one for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and mm-hmm. we can't show pictures over the radio, but <laughs> it's a very nice looking mushroom. It kind of looks like a brain to me, and it reminds yeah. me of when we had uh, Yarrow Willard on the show, and we were talking about how certain herbs and plants and things look like the body parts that they're supposed to treat. Mm-hmm. So yeah. lion's mane to me looks a little bit like a, a brain. Yeah. Cool. I think that's referred to as the doctrine of similars. Yeah. Or something or plant, like that. Plant allies. <laughs> plant allies, yeah. Well, what's so cool about them, um, I'm really fascinated by this topic, is this whole idea of mycelium. So everyone's heard of mushrooms, but not a lot of people have heard of mycelium. And mycelium are actually what grows underground like a very intricate web, a lot like brain cells or blood cells. And the and mushroom that the, is just the fruit? Yeah, the mushroom is just uh, the product, like what comes up in the that we see, right? And they usually only last for like four days. So um, scientists have never really been that interested in them. But when you start to research mycelium and, again, it's that part of the mushroom you don't see – you see how amazing this is, and I won't go too off the deep end here, but they're basically like the Earth's internet. Uh, mm. They call it the World Wood Web, and um, they're they're like the neurological network of nature, and so they uh, they stay in constant communication with the environment, and um, they sh- they're information sharing. So they, some mycologists believe that they, you know, they basically are conscious they have Mm. awareness and so when you see what they can do in the environment to the earth you can see what they do in humans that's Mm. why they're you know they've that a lot of mycologists believe that we evolved with them that Mm. that um you know when they found remains thousands of years ago in the remains they found a mushroom on the remain and it was perfectly preserved because Mm -hmm. it was in ice and so there's this relationship that's been going on for a long time and just now science is starting to actually look at it 
and see the properties yeah. of of the healing for the planet too, not just humans. So they're like the internet of the earth. So trees can log on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, ouch! Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so trees can log on to the network and. I think I read that they can warn each other of harm so mm-hmm. they can produce mm-hmm. the proper ke- chemicals to get the bugs off of them or they can yeah. transfer nutrients to the other little baby trees that might not be getting enough. Mm-hmm. And yeah. water. Wow. I've, yeah. I've heard like that. Some, some... The, uh, uh, maybe the same thing, Doug, but the, the warning system where uh, like if a, if a, a harmful um, – like a larvae of some kind is attacking trees, say in an area of a forest and it's moving in a certain direction that trees that are in the path of that destruction can, they, they're able to be warned and then they produce a, a chemical that wards off that yeah. you know, attacker. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's all kinds of crazy, really in- interesting stuff. Like apparently trees that are more in the shade and aren't getting enough sunlight can actually be fed by the trees around them through this um, mycelial network. Like actually, um, the because the mycelial network actually um, has like a symbiotic relationship with all these plants, and they give it carbohydrates so that it can um, kind of digest and, and use them. But then it can also transfer those nut- uh, some of those nutrients from one plant to another plant. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, some of the stuff that it does is pretty it's unbelievable. And actually, there was one thing I read, too, where I was talking about how, you know, nothing will grow. Well, they're saying apparently it uses this mycelial network to um, put out whatever that substance is that kind of um, uh, keeps uh, other plants from being able to grow there. So I guess, I don't know, maybe it needs a certain amount of space or something like that. So it distributes this, uh, this chemical through this mycelial network to prevent any other plants from growing there and they did some experiments with tomato plants where they managed to make it so some of the tomato plants weren't connected to that mycelial network and they grew okay but the ones that were connected to the mycelial network didn't grow okay they they it was like 60 percent worse or something like that yeah well they have a symbiotic relationship too so with the the roots of the trees the tree roots have to allow certain mycelium to basically interweave with them it's really, and you know, there are also not symbiotic relationships with fungus, mm-hmm. as we'll get into mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. But it's, as you said, I mean, it's what keeps the forest alive. And if a tree dies, then that becomes the detritus, the food. And essentially what the mycelium do is they eat the rotting tree and they produce soil. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't have dirt on earth if it weren't for this web in essence so that's another reason why we shouldn't be tearing down the old growth forests yes because we're yep yeah oh (laughs) pause (laughs) (laughs) let that sink in no it just made me sad for a minute but it kind of reminds me too of the living matrix that's in the human body Mm -hmm. we have a living fungal matrix that's in the soil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these things are huge too. Mycelial networks can uh, stretch for like miles. What was the one you were talking about before the show, Erica? 
Yeah, so there's the largest living organism on Earth is actually a mycelium mat, they call it, and it's in eastern Oregon, and it covers 2,200 acres, so about 1,600 football fields. That kind of gives you an idea. Um, It's only one cell wall thick, which is, you know, microscopic, Mm -hmm. and it's over 2,000 years old. And um, you can look it up online and see aerial photos of it. What is interesting about it is it's not necessarily beneficial because when you see the aerial photos, there's no trees growing where this mycelial mat is. Mm. So, Mm. you know, it's that very slippery slope between good (laughs) and not so good. Yeah. It's it's an evil mycelial network. (laughs) This might be a good spot for us to uh, to play the uh, Paul Stamets clip. What do you guys think? Yeah. 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 So you can't research mushrooms for any amount of time without running into this guy's name everywhere. So he's like the king of mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so he's giving a TED Talk here. We are now rediscovering that which our ancestors long ago knew, that mushrooms are deep reservoirs for very powerful medicines. In the next 10 minutes, I'm going to describe four mushrooms which I think are essential for human health. The first mushroom I want to mention is Amadou. Amadou was described by Hippocrates in 450 BC as an anti-inflammatory. Well, Amadou is a birch polypore, but it has other attributes as well. You can hollow this mushroom out in the center, put embers of a fire inside, and keep fire alive for days. Moreover, if you boil this mushroom, it delaminates into a cellular fabric. And my hat is made from amadou. Now, another fungal friend I have here, which I want to unveil, is agaricon. Agaricon is the longest living mushroom in the world. It was described by Dioscorides in 65 AD as Elixirium ad longum vitum, the treatment against consumption. Now, this mushroom is a resident to the old growth forest. It is now thought to be extinct in Europe. It grows in Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. This mushroom survives in the old growth forest under extremely adverse conditions, hundreds of inches of rain per year, wind, sleet, hail, baking in the sun, and yet it's the longest living mushroom that we know today. And may have the clicker. Thank you, Mark. So my partner and wife uh, spent a lot of time in the old growth forest looking for these mushrooms. And to give you some idea how rare agaricon is, although we have 40 strains of agaricon in culture after 30 years, the largest library by far in the world, my dear professor, Dr. Michael Bude, discovered his first agaricon in the old growth forest just these past few weeks after looking for mushrooms in the old growth forest for more than 40 years. So agaricon has anti-tubercular properties, and we have now confirmed this working with the U.S. BioShield Biodefense Program under the guidance of NIH and U.S. AMRID. And sometimes we have to go to great extremes to find these mushrooms. 
This is a 700-year-old Douglas fir tree. Our team member ascends the tree. We go 100 feet up this tree. And this is the oldest agaricon that we have found so far, approaching 100 years in age. Now, how is it that this mushroom can survive under microbial attack? And it's able to do so because the mycelium is this cellular architecture that is based on a network concept. And we don't need to harvest the mushrooms. We get a small piece of tissue. And the mycelium, as it grows, utilizes what we know as epigenesis. It has the amazing ability to adapt uh, its host defense strategies against pathogens. And using this information, we've been able to develop some very powerful gateways to new medicines. And these are extracellular droplets that we wash from the mycelium. And I'm happy to announce that we have discovered a new class of antimicrobials and antivirals called Fomitopsterols, after the Latin name of this mushroom, which is Fomitopsis officinalis. So powerful are these antivirals that when we do 100 to 1 dilution, we are more powerful than ribavirin against flu viruses and herpes. Um, now, mushrooms have other properties which are interesting. And so this is a group of cordyceps mushrooms. They're known as entomopathogenic fungi, fungi that kill insects. And the insects are on a constant dire dance between dinner and death as they go through soils. And cordyceps is a source of cyclosporin. Moreover, just recently, the FDA approved Novartis for a new anti-MS drug called Chilenia, which is predicted to be one of the 10 most profitable commercially produced drugs in the history of medicine. But cordyceps has a different face. And the cordyceps is a mold, has a mold stage. And they're like two faces of, of the same organism. Uh, these spores are very infectious to these insects. And most insects have entomopathogenic fungi that can harm them. So they avoid them with great diligence. But I did something different. I took these cultures of the mold state and I morphed it in the laboratory into a pre-sporulating form. And so insects avoid these spores, but I discovered that if you took the mycelium without the spores, something else happened, which was truly amazing. They became super attractants. And they became super attractants to ants, to termites, and a surprising array of other types of insects. And so the insects, in this case an ant, becomes mummified, and then, boing, a cordyceps mushroom sprouts out of its head. So it goes full circle. Now, we did extracts, again, washing the mycelium, and we were able to find that termites would stream directly to the location where the extracts were placed, and three positive controls, and the termites would tunnel specifically to where that location was. Well, I started trying against other non-social insects, uh, flies, gnats, and mosquitoes. And this is the baseline. The flat graph there is the control. And the only difference is we added the mycelium uh, to the extract. And we have not just attractants, but I've discovered super attractants. So when I tried it against mosquitoes, and this is where we hit the big home run, we can attract mosquitoes roughly equivalent to a human hand with the extracts. This has profound implications for disease control, from malaria to yellow fever to West Nile virus. And so what can we do? There's lots that we can do. I think we can now control disease vectors, zoonotic diseases carried by insects across landscapes. And since so many uh, insects and arthropods vector diseases, most of you may not know that H5N1 bird flu is carried by house flies. 
This is something that's not widely reported. But because of climate change, subtropical diseases are now entering into temperate zones. So being able to control zoonotic pathogens, I think, is one avenue that will have a positive impact in helping habitats and humans dwelling within those habitats. Moreover, insects and arthropods not only transmit diseases that afflict humans, but plants. So the implications of this, I think, is absolutely enormous. So we can increase the the efficiency of bug zappers. We can uh, uh, we can uh, steer insect migrations across landscapes. This is a paradigm shifting, revolutionary breakthrough on the most fundamental of levels. Um, and moreover, we can attract uh, disease carrying bugs. Um, and blend them with expired antiviral drugs, antimicrobial drugs, or the crude precursors that made those drugs. And we can create a panoply of a mixture of these drugs so the disease resistance would not occur. We can distract the, the insects uh, away from human populations, away from animal populations, away from plant populations. Or we can bring them to a locus and be able to control them. Most of you have heard that mosquito population on the East Coast was 10 times greater this year than it was previously. So another mushroom um, empowers the immune system, and this is turkey tails. And turkey tail mushrooms have also been used for more than a thousand years. Uh, NIH funded our group with a $2.1 million breast cancer clinical study, which has been recently completed. Now this breast cancer clinical study uh, was dealing with a non-ER, non-estrogen responsive breast cancer patients, ladies. Um, and the study has come back with some remarkable results. And when you the patients have radiation therapy or, or chemotherapy, their immune system is oftentimes impaired, so natural killer cells are decreased. Uh, taking these mushrooms as an adjunct therapy, not as a substitution, but to support the immune system, the natural killer cells uh, increase on a dose-dependent basis. The red bar is no treatment uh, with three grams and six grams per day. Um, and then post-radiation, the immune system is depressed, and then on a dose-dependent basis, the natural killer cells are enhanced over a period of four weeks. So this raises base immunity function, which I think is critically important. Now, this hit home to me very personally in June of 2009, when my 84-year-old mother called me up and said, Paul, I have something very serious to talk to you about, but you're always so busy. It's a terrible thing for, to hear from mom. I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she's a very happy, genuine person. She goes, I'm worried. And my mother's deeply religious, has not seen a doctor since 1968. She said, my right breast is five times the size of my left. I have six swollen lymph glands the size of walnuts. And her voice started shaking, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I started crying. Why didn't you tell me sooner? We spent a large part of June at the Swedish Breast Cancer Clinic in Seattle. The oncologist examined her, and upon the second examination, she had a 5.5 centimeter diameter tumor. It metastasized, it went to her sternum, and went to her liver. She had stage four breast cancer. The doctor gave her less than three months to live and stated it was the second worst case of breast cancer she has seen as a doctor in 20 years of practice. We had the circle family meeting. Many of you have gone through this. My mom announced that she bought a pine casket, the cheapest one that she could find, because she was going to heaven. But then the doctor said, you know, you're too old to have radiation therapy. You can't have your breasts removed. But there's an interesting study on turkey tail mushrooms at Bistir Medical School. You might want to try taking those. 
And that's my mother goes, well, my son's supplying those. So she was put on Taxol and Herceptin, wonderful drugs. And then she started taking eight turkey tail capsules a day, four in the morning and four in the evening. And that was in June of 2009. And today, my mother has no detectable tumors. And I'd like to bring my mother home. So that's the end. A nice happy ending. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It's, it is amazing. Turkey tail. Yeah. I guess they call it that because it looks like the tail of a turkey. Yeah. That's such a great story, and it's too bad that more people don't know about the healing power of mushrooms and herbs, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the first line of defense is to just go the typical slash cut and burn route that they use for cancer. So let's say that you did know what you were doing. You have a really good book and say you bumped into Paul Stamets at the (laughs) health food store or something. And you said, hey, let's go out and pick some mushrooms. And maybe you pick some reishi mushrooms or, I don't know, cordyceps or oyster or oyster or whatever. When you have the mushrooms, then what do you do? What do you do to get all the good stuff out of it? I think you just eat them. <laughs> can, can you just eat them? Well, some of them, like in some videos that I watched, they're kind of hard like wood. Yeah, like reishi and chaga in particular are kind of are very woody. So mm-hmm. those ones, um, you need to make a tea with them um, or a decoction, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically like a tea that you, you actually simmer it for a while. And I know with chaga... There's different methods of doing it. Like you can you can boil it for like hours if you want to, if you really want to kind of get a very concentrated mix. Or another way that people do it is they just keep reusing the same piece. So they'll mm-hmm. make they'll boil it for like ten minutes and then drink that tea and then next time they make another pot with the same piece and they, you can keep doing that for a, a number of times because mm-hmm. there's just so much in there. And apparently like the more that you do that, the the kind of the deeper the compounds um, you're getting out. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's actually changing a little bit every time. It's not like the same type of compounds. You're, you're getting more of them. So that's why some people are like, oh, yeah, boil it for like 10 hours or something because you're getting like more of those kind of uh, other properties from them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think you could make an alcohol extraction too, right, if you uh, steep mm-hmm. it in like grain alcohol for I don't know how long. It's, it's a decent amount of time. And then you basically open that container and let the alcohol evaporate again over a long period of time. And what you end up with is like a, like a resin, resinous extract. Mm. So that's essentially the base of an essential oil. Yeah. You could just use the alcohol extract too, like a tincture. Right. Just kind of take it. Just drop that in water or something. Yeah. 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 Or, I mean, I guess it really depends on the type of mushroom because, some of them certainly you can just you know if you found a bunch of oyster mushrooms I would just fry them up and eat them those are delicious <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and I wonder if some of these kids like I know that uh, in uh, mycotoxins and uh, specifically I think it's aflatoxin that's found in a lot of coffees is heat resistant and that's a negative you know uh, form of mold um, I wonder if the positive benefits are 
also heat resistant or if heat destroys some of that. But as you had mentioned, like with chaga, the, the tradition has been making tea. So mm-hmm. I guess I kind of have to figure something that's like a practice that has been around for thousands of years is most likely the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think the, the medicinal properties for the most part are, are fairly heat stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I guess uh, getting into the, uh, before we get into like the, bad stuff <laughs> uh, get, getting into the idea of supplements and stuff and taking like you know just a now foods capsule of whatever mushroom um i would imagine that you ha- as with anything else you have to be concerned with quality right and there's probably mm-hmm. some yeah. of these that have a lot of fillers or they're lower quality mushrooms you know that are grown in a facility somewhere uh, yeah that kind of thing the best thing i think you can do is actually get um, Paul Stamets actually has worked with um, at least one supplement company and kind of advised them on it. And, and um, he actually recommends having a mix of the fruiting body, which is like the mushroom itself that everybody's familiar with, as well as parts of the mycelium in, in the uh, capsule as well. Uh, um, so, yeah, if you get – I can't remember the name of the company that does it, unfortunately. But um, you – oh, yeah, no, Host Defense, I think it's called. Um, okay. and he, like, he, he's like their advisor. Um, <clears throat> and their mushrooms actually come from, he has like a, like a mushroom preserve kind of thing. It's old growth forest, um, somewhere in the U.S. And, um, Washington. he kind of cultivates, there you go, Washington State. And, um, yeah, he, he kind of, I don't know, it's like a big area, like, like several acres and, um, grows, uh, grows mushrooms there. So, I mean, they're not, um, you know, wild mushrooms because they are being cultivated, but they're being cultivated in kind of the most natural way possible. And it's a very yeah. clean land. Like there's no concerns about pollution or anything like that. So, because right. there are a lot of cheap supplements out there too, where it's just kind of like, you know, you know, I hate to paint with a, uh, every, everything that comes from China with the same brush, but it's kind of like, you know, there are kind of just cheaper grown in like some back alley kind of, <laughs> mushrooms that you got you know that probably are on the market and uh so you know buyer beware yeah well Well, you can uh, you can cultivate them yourself and i I don't mean to be you know um uh disingenuous about this because i have not done it myself but i do know a guy who makes his own uh or grows his own shiitake mushrooms and he's like Mm. a super nerd about it you know and sets up the logs and inoculates them and it has these little holes and ends up you know then he harvests them at a certain time and is very concerned with the quality and contamination. Mm. So you can do that yourself with different types of fungus. You can set up your own place to grow them. Um, you know, legality issues, I'm not sure, uh, like where it comes into making your own medicine kind of thing. Um, uh, <clears throat> I would think with but, shiitakes it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, only with, those, the with those, right, but I mean specifically the magic mushrooms. mushrooms. Are the ones. <laughs> yeah, those are the ones. Those, yeah, those of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with something like, say, you know, like Dragon's Tail that Stamus was talking about, or uh, Rooster Tail, right? Turkey Tail. Turkey Tail. <laughs> Turkey tail. Some kind of tail. <laughs> uh, you know, but things like that that you could probably grow in, in your own environment. Um, but again, you have to you have to kind of make yourself into a super nerd about it because it is such a delicate process and it can go mm. bad. Well, what's you know, interesting so about him, and um, if you watch other of his videos... He did purchase land up in um, 
Washington and it was very contaminated and where he lived they had to they told all the residents they needed to replace their septic systems and what he did as a mycologist and kind of a mushroom geek was he went ahead and just put wood chips down all over his property and um, they were spored with oyster mushroom spores and a year later the health department came back and you know, oh, did you replace your septic system? He said, no, I didn't have uh, the money, but they tested the water uh, coming off of his farm, and he had, you know, animals and stuff, nothing major, but it was like something crazy, like a hundred times or a hundred or a thousand times cleaner from just mm. applying the wood chips and the oyster mushrooms. So essentially, they were eating the negative pathogens out of soil mm. and he didn't have yeah. to replace his septic system but what his whole kind of theory is and i find it fascinating is that he wants to start what are called institutes of applied mycology or healing arts centers where people can do just this where they can cool. have their own applications where you could and not necessarily eat the oyster mushrooms i mean you can he talks about how his family eats them but how you could do this own thing yourself and clean up the surrounding environment. And for him, it was fascinating that it, because it's a farming area, they ate the pathogens like MRSA and E. coli bacteria. So when you think yeah. about, you know, industrial farming and um, dead zones and all that, that you could do these little applied mycology institutes and you could clean up the waterways. Yeah. It's pretty amazing because the, the mushrooms are actually yeah, the, the breaking thing down is, these things. They're actually like breaking down those those pathogens and those uh, the the toxicity. So you you can apparently eat the mushrooms because they've they've kind of completely neutralized it. So you know you hear a story like that, and you're like, I wouldn't eat those mushrooms. But <laughs> the thing is, it's actually like they're converting them. They're they're actually like you know getting rid of that toxicity. Yes. Right. Uh, Elliot, you were going to say something. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just going to say it's really sad that um, that our environment is so plagued with fungicides now because mm. everything that you spray in your garden or that's sprayed on the crops and that's sprayed on the sidewalks and that's sprayed everywhere, you know, you have fungicides. And if this network... Of, of fungus is essentially there to almost detoxify all of the the horrible things in the environment um, then then what's going to happen well, now that we've started killing it all off you know it's, it's like we don't think about things like this before we just come up with some crazy chemical start demolishing environments and then it's only going to show in the next sort of I don't know maybe 30 40 years I mean uh, I dread to think what's going to happen. Yeah, mm. it's true. I, I was think watching, the fungus uh, will fight back. <laughs> <laughs> it might. Well, in one of Paul Stanis' talks, he talked about how it, they survived um, one of the mass extinctions. It, well, actually, it was probably several, but they um, basically, you know, asteroid hit the um, it was completely darkened the planet. But because uh, fungus doesn't need uh, light was able to survive and it was kind of like the the one like you know everything else was basically decimated and fungus was just fine so it's them and the cockroaches <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it's, uh, I think uh, to your point about the oyster mushrooms and uh, being able to eat them because they pro- they break down the, the toxins that they're absorbing or that they're processing, uh, That I think that plays into like the general kind of fear of fungus, which I'm totally guilty of. Like Tiff was talking earlier, like I won't, you know, if, if somebody has morels that they picked, you know, and they, they know what they were looking for, there things like those that are, are wild mushrooms that are easier to identify or they have a strong tradition where a lot of people have identified them over the years, I feel more comfortable with. Mm. But um, that fear of, of fungus plays into situations where it might be beneficial, like you were saying, you know. Um, but it's funny how we kind of categorize things. Like if something comes to me in a capsule, then I immediately have faith in that. <laughs> like yeah. being safe, you know, <laughs> just as a subconscious kind of program. Yeah. Only if it's as marketed opposed- as a supplement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just interesting. You, you I think can the be bias like Yara Willard you. and go out in, in nature and ask the mushroom if it's healthy for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that in tune that I could that I would read that. Well, I know I'm definitely a, not. Another scary part of it is that some people was it the the death cap mushroom they got poisoned by or some mushroom they got poisoned by as they were eating it. They said it was like the most delicious mushroom <laughs> they'd ever tasted. <laughs> the symptoms didn't hit them right away, and then they got sick and they got sent to the ER or something. And they seem to get better, like they call it the little honeymoon phase, and then they go home, and then after that, their liver just starts breaking down. And if they're not caught then, then their kidney breaks down and their organs break down. Jesus. (laughs) Whoa. So they have, I think there's something in them called amatoxin. That can destroy the liver. So this is just with the poisonous mushrooms, like that mushroom that's in popular from the Nintendo games, the red one. Anamnita mascara, I think they're yeah, called. The they're red. Toadstool, white yeah. with the red dots on yeah. it, and then some other poisonous mushrooms. You gotta watch out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always important to know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so another part of our. Uh, discussion i think today that we should touch on is the is fungus or uh, no, I'm sorry, duh. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah let's talk about uh, fungus let's talk about fungus two minutes in so, uh, <laughs> mold specifically uh mold as a health hazard uh mm. I, I think that's a pretty fascinating topic because it's so widespread i know for a fact i lived in a house that had mold in it and i also i, I lived in a uh, a double wide trailer for a while or actually, single single wide. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Don't try and play it up, Jonathan. Just, just to clarify, but no, that was that was also you know it was it was damp, uh, and there were like parts of the walls that were didn't have the best integrity, and so there was mold in there. So like I know that I've gotten a dose of it in my life, and I'm sure that it's resulted in some things. Um, I know I've mentioned in the in the past on the show that I dealt with shingles at one point, and I think that that actually came from mold toxicity not that it not that it caused it of course but that it lowered my immunity to the point where yeah. the shingles broke out so yeah. that's my suspicion anyway but <clears throat> it's really pernicious i mean there are a lot of cases where even if you think that you're in a, a clean house you know it can be hiding in the walls and the spores are in the air um so it, you know if you if you have any ocd in you it can be really horrible but if you think about it for too long 
Yeah, well, if you if you are OCD, I don't recommend watching the documentary called Moldy because you'll be tearing <laughs> yeah. your walls apart looking for mold. It's like yeah. it's kind of terrifying. And you can't always see it because there's some bad molds that are white too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I had a and similar I, experience, Jonathan, with molds, um, and again, not being able to visually see it so much, but it. Um, for many years, I lived in a house that was moldy, and what happened was it just broke my immune system down, so I became allergic to all these things that wouldn't normally cause an allergic reaction, you know, animal mm-hmm. hair, and uh, once I moved out of that house, you know, after about six or seven months, I didn't, like, the allergy started to kind of go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, they actually say that if you are in a... Uh, in a in a place that is kind of infested with mold, that like the solutions to the problem are basically like get out and leave all your stuff behind because <laughs> the spores get into everything. So it's like if you yeah. take all your stuff with you, you haven't really solved the problem. They say there was there was one article that uh, that I read that said um, you know take nothing but your driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> and they also recommend that you don't try to clean it yourself because that just loosens all the spores and makes them easier to. It's so like if you can't move, what else are you gonna do? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I could see like like if you had cancer or some other debilitating disease, where it's like, okay, I got to get out of this house. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, people can't do that. No, no. it's not. It's it's damage. You know, it's damaging to your health, but it's not necessarily life threatening. So it's kind of like you can't really justify just leaving all your stuff behind. Yeah, just don't send your old grandpa with kidney damage or liver damage in right. mold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he may be able to handle it. <laughs> yeah. it. It might be just wishful thinking on my part, but um, but I tend to think, or I, I like to believe anyway. It makes me comfortable to believe this. That <laughs> if the immune system is 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 working optimally, mm-hmm. then it can sort of take take some level of control over over the fungus over the mold over over all of these things these uh these opportunistic yeasts and things that can get into the body i you know i like the idea and there are certain proponents of that idea as well the idea that you know your body can deal with it it's just mm-hmm. if it's given the right tools to do so because because yeah. really like my house is pretty moldy like there are uh. areas where there is mold and like if if you try to if you try to, as as tiff said if you try to clean it off then it can actually make it worse because you're like mm-hmm. releasing all the spores and then you're breathing them in so it's like what do you even do you know you, you can't afford to get someone to come around and like demold the house because that's like that's really expensive so <laughs> if, if you're not going to move out what can you do <laughs> do you know what i mean well, I wonder on a basic level if you like, uh, like on a budget, if you could get. No, they are not necessarily cheap, but those uh, respirator masks for you know, like house painters and stuff that have like the two canisters on the side. You can you can get those from most you know hardware stores and stuff. I wonder if mm-hmm. that would allow you to to clean it up and then like you know give it a, like a day to air out or something. I don't know. I, I mean, you get a it might give you a peace of mind. Well, <laughs> well you get a. <laughs> But dead mold is just as, as well. bad as live mold. Uh, I think yeah, I'm, so there's got to really be something like you can spray on it or something like that that would just kill it and then maybe get a, a HEPA filter going in your house so that it's kind of cleaning the air. 
Mm-hmm. Like I think sure. I think there are steps you can do. Like just saying my immune system is strong enough to handle it, I think maybe is a little responsible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in a lot of cases, Elliot is right. I mean, there's also mold and fungus in in spores everywhere in the air mm-hmm. the second you walk outside. So it's like you know our immune system handles those. The key yeah. here is being in an enclosed space with something that's toxic. Yeah. yeah, and if you consider that, so they say every one of us has little bits of cancer in us that our body takes care of and shunts away. And if you consider that there are a lot of practitioners out there nowadays saying that cancer is indeed a fungus. Mm-hmm. So back to what Elliot said about a strong immune system, I like to believe that too. Mm-hmm. That our immune systems can handle certain things as long as we're healthy enough to do so. The pro- yeah, see, that's the that's the caveat there, though. Like yeah. the problem, yeah. you if have you're to, sick, you know, it's it. one. Well, it's not even if you're sick. I'm just thinking of like <laughs> the amount of stuff that we're surrounded by on a daily basis, and you know, many of those things you have absolutely no control over, like the pollution in your area, and like you know, Fukushima radiation and the crap in our food. All this kind of stuff, it just it's it's just adding to the total burden, right? Yeah. So if you do have something in your vi- environment that you can have some control over in some manner, it might be a good idea to take care of that, just so you're not adding yet another thing onto the crap pile that uh, <laughs> that is our existence. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not chastising you or anything, Elliot. I'm just. No, I no, I completely agree. I completely agree there. I especially well, uh, like the crap pile that is our existence. There's I know you guys are, I think our listeners are familiar with uh, Dave Asprey. He's the bulletproof mm. coffee guy. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I agree with some things he says, disagree with some, you know, kind of that way with everybody. But he uh, tells uh, an interesting story about when he discovered that he had uh, mold toxicity and apparently it did kind of like Erica, what you had said, like it, it triggered a bunch of allergies that he was able to recover from, but he's now at this point so sensitive that, and this is, you know, I don't know how true this is. It's what he claims that he can tell within like five to 10 minutes, if a coffee that he's had, had, had been contaminated with mycotoxin because uh, he'll have certain inflammatory reactions that happen instantly. And he thinks that that's because of his exposure to the mold toxicity in the past. Hmm. Yeah, I I would believe that. He has the Michael Toxin free coffee. (laughs) I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, he sells the the good stuff. Yeah. So it's. I mean, you can't deny it's a good story for his business. Yeah. It may also be true. Uh, It may. Well, when it comes to coffee, I think a lot of people don't realize that before they even roast the beans, depending on the type of coffee you have, because it is susceptible to fungus, is it sits in vats of liquid pesticides, Mm. especially when it's shipped around the world. And then they, you know, wash it off and roast it. Mm. So if you ever get that jittery, (laughs) not feel good sensation from coffee that may be it it may be you know just the chemical overload too Mm. or i mean and then you know there's quote-unquote organic coffee and maybe it doesn't have the mold i don't know what about the coffee that they grow in bat poop (laughs) (laughs) would that make you jittery (laughs) make you batty (laughs) 
No, it's a, that's definitely a thing. Um, I mean, good, you know, it, coffee that's worth drinking is unfortunately really expensive. Like, if you, it, it's really, and <clears throat> I'm not trying to sound like holier than now because I drink some coffee that I shouldn't probably, but I don't hmm. drink, you know, like Folgers, Folgers. Uh, you know, like that. <laughs> or, and I try, I try my best not to drink pre-ground coffee. Like, if I'm going to get, you yeah. know, beans or something. However, there, you know, you really should be, and I should be. Uh, finding single origin coffee where it's like, yeah. you know, it seems, it seems hoity toity, all the like fair trade, equal wage stuff. Like it, it, if you come from a certain point of view, you're like fancy packaging, all these things, why is it $20 a pound? Um, mm. But you know, in, in some of those cases, it's not just marketing. It's like, this is actually single origin. It came from the farm. It was roasted in, in a certain process. So, you know, it's free of mycotoxins and all that. It just makes it more expensive, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Will you pay to not have all that crap in there, unfortunately. Yeah, you know yeah I mean? exactly. That's the same thing with food as well. Yeah, you pay more for cleaner food. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, the, the just having organic coffee isn't necessarily enough because apparently right. it, the organic coffee can just as likely be contaminated with mycotoxins as, uh, yeah. as uh, the standard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You could just yeah, not they... drink coffee. <laughs> no. no that, that, that's, <laughs> that's not about tea, chaga tea. <laughs> what what of apparently what um apparently a, a sort of a more safer option is to um is to get the wet processed coffee. Yeah. So they, they process it uh in a different way where they like spray it with water and stuff, but apparently that minimizes the amount of mycotoxin and also coffee grown at high elevations as well so um i think it was yeah i think it might have been dave asprey or someone like that basically saying that if you can get somewhere maybe in um africa or south america which is grown at high elevation like in the mountains or something and is wet processed and then if if it's organic it's even better um that you you're gonna minimize the amount of of the the fungus that, that you get on the coffee. Yeah, it was, uh, I'm sure that was Asprey. He's like the guy if you uh, who talks about moldy coffee. If you look that up. He's the Paul Stamets of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, he, he uh, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's a real issue. How much of an issue is it? I'm not sure. He really, he, if you, if you're not familiar with Dave Asprey, take a second and look him up. Like he's also very, like he's super smart. And you can tell that he's concerned about health, but he's an epic businessman. Yeah. And so it's like it, I'm constantly on this back and forth between like I really want to listen to what he's talking about, but I'm also trying to suss out what he's trying to sell. So it's one of those <laughs> kind of things. But he has a lot yeah. of good information, I think, like yeah, good stuff that I people agree. are not generally aware of. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, I mean uh, – the, the mold being everywhere is kind of... I'm going to have to check out that documentary, Doug, you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I might have to stay home for a week. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a few, of them. Or leave, There's a few yeah. of them to watch. What's the other one? There was another one, uh, Toxic Exposure, or Exposure, just about um, mold illness and how it's very much mistaken for things, you know, like uh, fibromyalgia or... Um, yeah. There's even some doctors who question whether fungal infections are mistaken as cancer because yeah, they sure. say that a lot of these cancer patients, like uh, people who have leukemia, for example, come up with these 
quote unquote secondary fungal infections. But what if the fungal infection is not secondary? What if it's primary? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there's some uh, cases where they go on a treatment of antifungals um, to deal with these quote secondary um, infections and end up clearing up their cancer, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also that very interesting, uh, what was his name? The Italian doctor who, who treats, uh, yeah, with baking soda. And there's a video of his where during an operation, they showed a, a tumor that they had basically just doused continually, continuously with alkaline baking soda water. Uh Um, and uh, demonstrated that that had like reduced and reduced the tumor, and it killed it very, very quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. it was kind of incredible within like a span of a day or two. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, some yeah. of those, it's like, you know, what's what's anecdotal, what's true, what's not. It's hard to say. Um, but you know, I think <clears throat> the point we make over and over on the show. I know we're talking about fungus, but to shift for a second to cancer, the idea that you know. Uh, that there's not a cure that we're still searching for a cure. There's like a race, you know, walks for the cure and races for the cure. And they sell gumballs for the cure, which is the most retarded pink thing. ribbons for the cure and KFC <laughs> yeah. chicken buckets for the cure. <laughs> yeah. When the, you know, the cures plural exist mm-hmm. everywhere, you know, and it, it, people are just, uh, I don't know, too stubborn or, or, or too uh, complacent to, um, to or find out, you know, in know. general. Yeah. yeah, or they just don't know, right? I mean, yeah, you go to your doctor, you listen to what they say. And especially with something like cancer, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to listen to my doctor, right? Because it's yeah. like the worst thing. Yeah, that's the diagnosis that has people soiling themselves all over. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. interesting about Paul Stamets' mom, though, that she did go the Western route with mm-hmm. the drugs and then just added the turkey tails into it and ended mm-hmm. up going into complete remission. Yay, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like dinner. Uh, shifting back to the negative and then fungi, uh, the, the molds and the toxic stuff. I think like that point about the immune system is an important one, even though it won't protect you a hundred percent of the time, like the basic, basic health for everything. And again, I'm, I'm guilty of not doing this, but it's just keeping up your immune system because you'll yeah. be, you'll be much better the vast majority of the time if you just do that basic thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, one interesting um, article that was on actually Green Med Info, um, it was up on SOD as well, it was called Research Confirms Yeast is a Cause of Cancer and Turmeric Can Kill Both. And it was actually talking about this connection between yeast, fungus, and, um, and cancer. And they were actually um, saying that uh, it's candida, basically, that um, candida can, like, weaken the system and um, causes carcinogenic byproducts, uh, triggers inflammation, and um, has, has a bunch of things that, ha- that happen with it that actually can lead to cancer. So in that respect, it kind of, it kind of makes sense that, that people going on these kind of antifungals might actually have some success with um, their cancer just because it's kind of getting rid of um, one of the possible causes. Like I'm not, I wouldn't, right. you know, go out on a limb and say, well, you know, all all cancer is caused by um, fungal infections or anything like that. But I certainly think that it could be uh, some um, in some cases it certainly could be the cause. 
But uh, candida is another nasty fungus that's kind yeah. of ubiquitous. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's, like, it's hard to it's, manage when you have it. Like, I mean, when you, when it's overgrown, I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like the most the most common one that people really ascribe their symptoms to. I mean, even if they haven't had it tested, um, that you know, you just type in online "candida" and your symptom, and it will come up. That any symptom yeah. that you, you find, it will say you've got candida, uh, and that's yeah. not actually the case a lot of the time. Uh, I thought that I had candida. I tested for it, and apparently, I don't have candida. So um, a lot of the time people can go on like really restrictive diets and take all this anti-candida supplements. They spend loads of money and then their symptoms don't get any better because they didn't have candida in the first place. But yeah. that said, uh, candida is you know quite common in a lot of people and it generally uh, is said to occupy the gastrointestinal tract. Mm. Um, and ordinarily there is a small amount or you have different populations of different yeasts and and bacteria in your gut and normally um there's there's no sort of overarching species because we we don't we don't even know how many species there are but generally a normal person with a healthy gut microbe microbiome um will will have some candida in and it's actually said to have Mm -hmm. many sort of protective uh, properties um mm-hmm. but the problem is when they say that you've got candida what what they're actually talking about is that when there's an overgrowth of the candida and so for whatever reason the candida is allowed to flourish and sort of um it's an opportunistic um yeast so what that means is that when it sees the opportunity to thrive it will um and that means that it can sort of grow out of proportion to the other species and it's said to, you know, lead to some pretty negative effects. Uh, one is like yeah. sugar craving, you know, mm-hmm. it, it ferments sugar. And so people who have common, uh, lots of sort of cravings for sugary sweets and carbohydrates and stuff, it's said that this is sometimes to, due to candida overgrowth. Mm. Yeah. And oddly enough, there are some candida... Like some people may test positive for candida and they go on a very low carb or ketogenic diet and it doesn't get better. According to, I keep wanting to say Paul Stamets, but that's not him. Paul Jaminet. Uh, yeah, Paul Jaminet. He says that there's certain candida that can feed off of ketones. So people mm-hmm. are expecting relief when they go on the ketogenic diet and they don't get it. Yeah. Well, to take that further, um, there's also some people who would say that going on a really low-carb diet for candida is is possibly not really a good idea. Um, mm. And that's because, I mean, it takes a very different approach because usually if you, if you think you've got candida, if you look at a diet, people will usually recommend a ketogenic diet or a very low-carbohydrate diet with no fruits, no starches, um, and really low sugar. Um, That's based on the observation that candida feeds off of uh, glucose. So basically the idea is is that if you cut all these things out of your diet, then the candida will no longer feed off that. But there's a couple of researchers who actually um, go the opposite approach, and they say, well, if you completely restrict sugar, then what actually happens is the candida needs needs to find sugar somehow yeah unless it's burning ketones 
So what it can actually do is it can embed deeper into the intestinal lining to get into contact with the bloodstream. And so mm. whatever glucose that, that you are breaking down, even say you're on a ketogenic diet, there you are still going to have blood glucose because you're going to be breaking down proteins via gluconeogenesis in the liver to provide glucose for various processes that can't operate via fat. So you're always going to have glucose in your bloodstream. If you didn't, you'd die. Um, so the candida, when it's deprived of glucose, it's said anyway that sometimes what can happen is it, it sort of um, embeds really deeply into the intestine and, um, and there it can get sort of um, a better supply of, of glucose from the bloodstream and the surrounding tissues. And so um, I don't know whether whether that is true or not. I haven't seen any research on that, but I thought that was an interesting way of going about it. Um, yeah. There's another There's another thing also is that people say that on a candida diet, um, one of the best things to do is to restrict yeast and to restrict um, fungus. So they say don't eat mushrooms, don't eat um, anything containing any form of yeast or any other fungus. Um, now, this is also debated because, okay, it w- works from the assumption that by feeding candida, because candida is a fungus, by eating more fungus, you are going to sort of add to that burden. But there's also other researchers who will say that actually by consuming fungus such as, um, you know, yeast or, or other mushrooms, um, what that will do is is sort of counteract the effect of uh, counteract um the the level of the candida so it will almost act to balance out the amount of candida that is actually thriving in the gut and so it will hopefully lower it again i don't know if that is if there is any truth to that um i know that some people have had good results in clinic uh, actually feeding people with mushrooms who've got candida and it seems to help well, but it's hard to say well, well yeah i mean there's actually um, mushrooms, like a lot of those medicinal mushrooms are actually anti-candida. And I think the, the, the issue isn't that um, yeast or other funguses or something like that will feed the candida. I know a lot of people online on the internet will say that. But the problem is that um, if you are um, in a candida overgrowth um, uh, situation, you uh, your immune system will kind of form antibodies against the candida, against the fungus. So if you take in uh, a yeast or um, um, a, a fungus or, or mold or whatever, you'll have a, an immune reaction to it. So it's not so much that you're feeding it necessarily, but you're having negative effects from um, being exposed to something similar. But mushrooms aren't really the same thing. And uh, a lot of those medicinal mushrooms actually will help with candida, um, especially I know reiki, uh, reishi mushroom um, will help to kind of clean out um, a lot of toxic stuff. So a lot of the toxic byproducts that candida is producing will actually be helped get out of the system by, by taking something like reishi. Well, there was this mushroom farmer who did something that is kind of like fungus killing another fungus. He's, he said he was growing these fungal spores in a agar culture, which is like sugar, and then like spores from the air, some other fungus contaminated. It was trying to get at the agar. And the fungus that he was growing produced these metabolites that killed off the invading fungus. So it could make sense if you fight fungus with fungus, mm. it might work in your body. Mm-hmm. 
there's um there's also um because as as everyone probably knows you know there's all of these negative um sort of connotations with the word candida um that it causes all of these problems um but there's there's an interesting sort of another take on it as well and there's i mean there's loads of takes on candida like different researchers <laughs> yeah. say different things there's there's like there's too many but there's one that kind of is really interesting is that candida seems to have the property of binding with heavy metals mm-hmm. um so it can bind things like mercury i believe and lead and possibly aluminium i need to check that but so there's um certain people who who will say that candida is actually sort of um it's like a protective mechanism or your body allows it to to sort of thrive um so that it can it's almost like a protection against heavy metal toxicity. So if someone's really toxically overburdened with say mercury or something, then there's, I mean, you you could look at this two ways because you could say that the heavy metal toxicity lowers the immune system, which then allows the candida to thrive. But then you could also say that, okay, is the candida being allowed to thrive so that it potentially binds some of the, those toxic heavy metals and stuff and stops them from actually entering the bloodstream. It's it mm-hmm. again. It's another one that's hard to say, and it's maybe maybe it's both both of those things, you know. Mm. Yeah, and in that situation, it could be quite bad to just go on a kill a candida killing spree because you'd be mm-hmm. all that met those metals that have been sequestered by it would suddenly be free and in the bloodstream again. Yeah. Um, for anyone who's interested to see if they've actually got candida or not, as well. Um, there's a couple tests that you can do. Um, one is a really common one. It's called a comprehensive digestive stool analysis. Um, and it's offered by a couple different companies. Uh, there's also a more comprehensive one, which is called GI effects. And that is offered by a company called Genova diagnostics. So this will basically consist of three days of a stool sample and uh, you take multiple samples, send it off, and that basically uh, gives you uh, uh, the, the results show whether there was any candida growth or any other yeasts. Um, it also tests for things like parasites and dysbiosis and inflammation and stuff. Um, and in conjunction with that, if you really think you've got candida, um, you could also do a urinary organic acids test. So um, the specific marker that you're looking for on that test is called arabinitol. Um, so this is a metabolite, it's, um, and it's excreted via the urine. And so if you've got high levels of this metabolite, then, um, then it's a good chance that you've got some sort of yeast overgrowth. And then if you do, if, you, if the test results come back properly, then you can sort of formulate a plan or you know, contact a professional who can sort of formulate your plan and sort of target it that way. Um, but I think I think one problem here is, and I kind of see this a lot actually, um, is that people tend to they'll, they'll read something on the internet and then assume that they've got it, so they mm. sort of do some crazy protocols, spend loads of money, and then nothing changes because either the specific pathogen they've got in their gut is um not sensitive or is resistant to the type of herbs that you're using or whatever or you've just completely gone off the mark and you haven't even got candida in the first place 
Um, so, <laughs> um, it, you know, to save yourself from wasting money and time and effort, you know, it's it's best just to invest in a test if you can, and then see what's there. And then if you've got candida, then you can sort of, you know, see what you got to do. Mm. Yeah, I think that's good advice because, like you're saying, if you go if you go online, like you know, every symptom you can possibly imagine is attributed to candida overgrowth. So, yeah, I think uh, I think getting some kind of objective testing is probably the best way to go. Definitely, and like as with anything, you just need to approach with caution and not do the the nuking the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's like taking a whole bottle of oregano oil. I wasn't referencing that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never live it down. <laughs> so, uh, do uh, do you guys want to go to the pet health segment uh, since we're kind of coming up on our time? Sure. Cool. It's about yeast infections in dogs. Oh. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya and today's topic is yeast infection in dogs. We are all familiar with a somewhat stinky dog odor. Some think that it is normal for dogs. Well, not really, and it can be an indication of an yeast infection. Listen to the following recording by Dr. Karen Becker to learn many interesting and important facts about this kind of smelly situation. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and most pet owners have heard the term yeast infection before. But what many pet owners don't know is exactly what causes a yeast infection. And sometimes dog owners assume that their pets are meant to have kind of a stinky, doggy odor smell when really their dogs are having a yeast problem. Yeast is a spore-like type of fungi that reproduces through a process called budding. Budding just means that portions of the organism's cell body breaks off to form a whole new yeast organism. Yeast infections of the skin and of the ears are very common in dogs and are caused by an organism called Malassezia pachydermatis. These organisms are normal inhabitants of your dog's skin and ears. A normal amount of yeast becomes an infection when the organism begins to reproduce uncontrollably. When the yeast production gets out of control, the organisms invade and colonize areas of a dog's body and skin beyond where they would normally live and in higher numbers. This means yeast are opportunistic. They flourish on a body when the body isn't healthy or in perfect balance. Most dogs with yeast infections have immune system imbalances and can't control the yeast overgrowth. Yeast infections can also occur during and after antibiotic therapy when the body's beneficial bacterial levels that maintain healthy skin defenses have been affected by the antibiotic drugs. Yeast can also be a rampant problem for pets that are immunosuppressed. Some pets are born with weak immune systems, like those animals that are born immunoglobulin deficient. There are also certain drugs, like steroids and chemotherapeutic agents, that suppress an animal's immune system and can open the door to yeast infections. I see yeast infections in clinical practice most commonly associated with allergies. An allergy is an immune system overreaction. So vets use immunosuppressive steroids like prednisone, dexamethasone, and cortisone to mute or turn off a body's immune system response, making it incapable of managing normal floral levels. 
This, of course, can lead to yeast overgrowth. Pets with allergies who go on to develop secondary skin infections with bacteria are then given antibiotics. But antibiotics destroy all bacteria, the bad and the good, which can also lead to yeast overgrowth. The more antibiotics that are given, the worse the yeast infections tend to be. Allergic dogs can also develop allergies to their own yeast, making the problem even worse. Allergy testing sometimes shows that dogs are actually having an allergic response to their own natural flora as well. So the situation can get very complicated. So pets with an underactive immune system, which is identified by IgA, IgM, and IgG testing, as well as pets that have overactive immune systems and allergies, can both be affected by chronic yeast infections. A yeast infection can occur anywhere on a dog's skin, including between the toes, in the armpits, and in the deep wrinkles and folds of the skin. But the most common location for a yeast infection is your dog's ears. At a minimum, a dog with a yeast infection feels uncomfortable. The discomfort can range from very mild to terrible. Almost all dogs with a yeast problem become extremely and chronically itchy at the site of the infection. If it's a problem with her paws, she will not be able to leave them alone. And the same goes for her ears. There can also be a lot of butt scooting, and there can also be a lot of digging, tearing, wherever uh, the yeast tends to occur on the body. This terrible itching can lead to desperate scratching and chewing, which can then result in a lot of self-induced trauma and a lot of pain. The other thing that most pet guardians notice is the smell. Yeast has a very distinctive odor, which has been described as similar to moldy bread or cheese popcorn or corn chips. It's just this musty, very stinky smell. Some people refer to yeast infections on a dog's paws as Frito feet. In general, it's a pungent, musty, unpleasant smell. Sometimes it can be really overpowering. I'm sensitive to the smell of yeast, so when I have a patient come in my exam room, the owner may not know that the dog has a yeast problem, but I can smell it six to ten feet away. I've met many owners who have had yeast going on for so long in their dogs that they no longer recognize that their pets stink. And sometimes I hear owners say, oh, I thought they were supposed to smell like that when they just have become so accustomed to their dog's chronic yeast problem. Other signs of a yeast infection include areas of skin irritation, redness and inflammation, especially in and around the ears, uh, around the, the toes and pads of the feet, the nasal or facial folds around the anus, under the armpits or in the neck, sometimes around the tail base. There might also be hair loss, scaly or oily skin, or a greasy hair coat. Sometimes in chronic severe yeast infections, there can be dark, very thick skin, uh, and sometimes there can be secondary bacterial infection as well. There can also be a smelly yellow-green discharge from the ears most commonly, but other areas of the body that are infected with yeast can produce raised scaly areas or patches of skin. There can also be behavior changes caused by the itching and pain, and that can range from depression loss of appetite to actually anxiety and aggression. I've seen some dogs where when you try and, their, their itch is so intense that when you try and stop them, they're digging at their paws and you try and stop them, they will become aggressive because their itch is so intense and so overwhelming. It's, it's a very sad situation. Definitive diagnosis by a vet of a yeast infection is accomplished by either cytology, which is looking at a skin swab under a microscope, or by culturing, which is, which is submitting a sterile swab of the skin to a lab where the cells are grown and then identified on a Petri dish. 
if there's an ear infection, either diagnosed or suspected, it's extremely important to know whether the eardrums are still intact before putting any liquids, gels, cleaners, or other medications down in the ears. If one or both of the eardrums have ruptured, uh, putting products into the ear canals can damage the middle and inner ear. Most dogs with a yeast infection have it in more than one spot. For example, they can have it on all four paws, both ears, or in some cases, all over the whole body. Hands down, the most important aspect of addressing chronic yeast is through diet. I'll go so far as to say that you will not be able to address a moderate to severe yeast infection naturally without addressing diet. Regardless of the root cause of why the yeast infection is occurring, nutrition is the most important thing you can think about. The nutrition your dog receives either supports his immune system to keep yeast growth under control or it does the opposite and exacerbates a yeast overgrowth situation. If you have a dog that has yeast, I recommend an anti-yeast diet, which is also called an anti-inflammatory diet, which is also called a species-appropriate diet. Yeast use sugar as a source of energy. And of course, we all know that carbs break down into sugar. So the first thing yeasty patients, human or canine, needs to do is remove sugar from the diet. And remember that dietary sugar isn't just the white stuff. It's honey, high fructose corn syrup on the back of a label. Even white and sweet potatoes can feed a yeast problem, as well as the tapioca found in grain-free dry foods. I recommend an entirely grain-free and carb-free diet for patients that have yeast. This step is actually really, really important because you can't effectively deal with the yeast problem without addressing this aspect of your pet's diet, regardless of how many supplements and baths you put your dog on. Your dog's nutrition should help keep his normal floral levels balanced. I also recommend adding a few natural antifungal foods to your pet's diet, for example, a small amount of fresh garlic, thyme, parsley, and oregano to help naturally reduce the level of yeast in your dog's body. Adding fermented veggies, if your dog will eat them, can also be really beneficial. Raw, unfiltered apple cider vinegar and coconut oil are also really good natural antifungal additions that can be added right to your pet's food. At the same time we're addressing a yeasty pet's diet, we also need to begin a disinfection protocol to treat the areas where the yeast infection is occurring. Yeast love a moist environment and it grows in crevices. So like between your dog's toe pads or in the armpit or the creases of his groin or around the tail base, it's not enough to just apply a cream or salve or antifungal solution to, to those parts of the body. The parts of the body that have a yeast infection must be disinfected and regularly disinfected. I recommend at least once a day so that the topical remedies that you apply after you've cleaned the area have a chance to work. Applying any topical agent without removing the dead yeast on a consistent basis can actually make the, the problem much worse. If your dog's ears are the problem, then you'll need to disinfect them daily with either a store-bought solution or, in my practice, I use witch hazel and really large cotton balls. Use as many cotton balls as it takes to remove all of the debris from the ears at each cleaning. I don't recommend you put Q-tips down the canals of your dog's ears, but you can use Q-tips for around the outside for, for removing that light yellow goo, that stinky goo on a daily basis. And keep in mind that some dogs just naturally produce a lot of gunk in their ears, and that natural debris or wax needs to be removed every day to avoid yeast and other types of ear infections. So the question is, people say, how often should I clean my dog's ears? As often as you need to, to have the ear canals clean and dry. The amount of cleaning depends on the amount of debris that accumulates in the ear. 
So if your if your dogs produce goo on a weekly basis, clean your dog's ears weekly. But if you look in your dog's ears and you can see wax or debris on a daily basis, clean your dog's ears every day. By you keeping your dog's ears clean and dry, you can actually prevent yeast infections from occurring and also yeast infection progressing to a full-blown bacterial infection. If the yeast overgrowth is on your dog's feet, keeping them clean is essential, and that means dunking them rather than spraying or wiping them down. Yeast grows under the nail beds and in the creases um, of your dog's feet, which is why the paws must be actually submerged in a foot soak rather than just wiped off. Depending on the size of your dog, you can actually fashion a foot soak from almost anything that holds water. If your pet is small, you can simply stand her in the bathroom or kitchen sink. For bigger dogs, you can use a, a sweater tub that you can fill with a hose, and they, you can walk them through it and have them stand. And if you're in a small apartment, uh, you can use a coffee can and just plunge uh, your dog's feet down in the can. You want to be able to dunk each of your dog's feet in the can and then pat them dry. You can use this solution as many times a day as necessary to keep your dog's feet clean and uh, effectively reduce itching. There's no need to rinse if you use this solution. Just pat the paws dry. Leaving the solution dried on your dog's paws provides an antifungal effect that can actually reduce licking and chewing. Remember that hydrogen peroxide can lighten your dog's fur, so keep that in mind. For skin yeast infections, I recommend bathing with a natural antifungal shampoo. I tend to opt for tea tree oil or an herbal shampoo. You can bathe as often as necessary, but honestly, minimally at least once a week. Since grains and carbs feed yeast, I don't recommend using any oatmeal-based shampoos for pets with allergies or yeast infections. The good news is that I have managed many, many patients with yeast and terrible itching solely through diet and baths two to three times a week. Medicated baths are an annoying, frustrating thing to have to consider as a pet parent. It takes time, but actually it's a cheap and very effective way to manage yeast and to keep your pet feeling comfortable uh, on a common sense basis. It's also non-toxic compared to antifungal drugs that conventional veterinarians would be prescribing at this time. I also like antifungal rinses and sprays in between disinfecting baths. A rinse is poured on your dog after a bath and may help extend the number of days in between baths to control yeast. There are several different rinses you can try. I've had success with vinegar, lemon juice, and essential oils. Vinegar and lemons are naturally astringing, so they're, they're drying by nature, and they're excellent for dogs with greasy or oily coats. So you add one cup of vinegar or a cup of lemon juice or 10 drops of peppermint oil with 10 drops of lavender oil to a gallon of water. Remember, since lemon juice can also lighten fur, I recommend using vinegar or essential oil mixes for dogs with dark coats. After shampooing your dog and rinsing thoroughly, you follow up with your gallon of natural antifungal rinse to knock down the amount of yeast remaining on your dog's skin. You pour the rinse water over your dog's collar from her neck to the base of her tail, making sure you don't apply it to her head. You rub the solution into her coat and skin, focusing on the areas where she's yeasty. So you need to make sure that you get the solution around the armpits, down around the feet, around the groin area, around the tail base, and you don't rinse the solution off. So you just pour the solution on, rub it in, and then towel dry. You can also put any of these solutions into a spray bottle and mist the itchy areas throughout the day as needed to help control itch and yeast overgrowth. 
Adding a dropper full of colloidal silver to the spray bottle also adds an additional all-natural antimicrobial agent. If your dog only has yeast issues in the warmer months of the year, spring and summer are the times when you'll be really focused and vigilant about disinfecting him and making sure his diet is not contributing to a yeast overgrowth problem. It's important to remember these suggestions aren't magic. It will take some time on any all-natural protocol to see improvement. So if these easy, cheap solutions are effective at managing your dog's chronic yeast issues, I'd recommend you continue the carb-free, preferably fresh food diet year-round to minimize your pet's likelihood of fostering additional opportunistic yeast infections in the future. There are some supplements your holistic veterinarian may also recommend to assist in reestablishing healthy and normal levels of yeast in your pet's body. Probiotics can be very beneficial, as well as the herbs Powdarko, Golden Seal, caprylic acid, or the more potent 10 undecinoic acid, which are organic unsaturated fatty acids many holistic veterinarians prescribe for stubborn yeast infections. Unfortunately, some dogs have year-round yeast problems, and no matter what food they're eating and what remedies their owners are, are trying to manage their condition, the yeast is just out of control, in which case it's most likely an immune system issue. When I have patients with stubborn yeast infections that will not go away, I do immune testing to measure the immunoglobulin levels, which is IgG, IgM, and IgA. It's a blood test. Generally, these levels are low in a dog with constant yeast overgrowth. If your dog is producing healthy levels of immunoglobulins, he should be able to overcome almost any infection, and particularly an opportunistic yeast infection. Could we say those are yeast-free goats? We could. <laughs> I don't know. I'm starting to stretch. It's a stretch. Well, thank you, Zoya. Um, we appreciate that. Uh, I guess um, I don't have that much to add on uh, on our topic for today. Um, unless you guys have any closing points. Fungus is sometimes good and it's sometimes bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> well, uh, we, <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> we would like to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in today and to the chat participants. Um, be sure to check out the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net. You can see the airtime in your local time zone there. Check that out on Sunday. We'll be back next week. Bye. 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 Bye.